Production. Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink of Christianity.org. Today is Saturday, December 5th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we are going back to our presentation of Martin Luther in Life and Death once again, and this is part 11. There may well be 40 or 50 parts to this series before it's complete. I think a lot of things here are very important for identity Christians to understand, especially going forward as we seek a new reformation. Tonight's program is subtitled, The Cause of Dread. As we near the end of our presentation, the reasons for that shall become more evident. As we progress through our study of the early stages of Martin Luther's Reformation, there are two subjects raised from our recent presentations of Luther's life which merit some discussion. The first is his view on marriage, and the second his understanding of the consequences of international trade. Throughout the history of the medieval Roman church, marriage, like many other things that probably should not have been, or certainly should not have been, marriage was treated as a religious sacrament, as it remains with Catholics today, even though we should understand that it is often merely superficial. Is marriage important? Yes. Is it a religious sacrament? There shouldn't be any religious sacraments in that sense. Priests need sacraments. While the modern church marriage ceremonies are relatively new in history, and the actual act of marriage, of course, cannot occur in a church itself, the local Catholic churches nevertheless consecrated marriages, which ensured that the union was within certain church laws. A Catholic in good standing could not marry someone who was already known to have been married, unless they were widowed. And Catholics were also expected to marry other Catholics. They were certainly not permitted to marry Jews or Muslims if they themselves wanted to remain Catholics in good standing. And it was important for people to be in good standing with their local church if they desired to be in good standing with their community, as the two were very closely related. Of course, that did not stop people from converting their religion solely for the purposes of getting married. But we may observe, even in modern times, that very frequently religion and custom are far stronger barriers to the mixing of the races than race itself. However, the point to understand here is that since the act of getting married was in accordance with local custom, and since the bounds of legitimate marriage were supervised by the local churches, the governments of the various states throughout the medieval period had very little to do with marriage, if anything at all. Luther had many legitimate complaints about how the Catholic churches had been consecrating marriages and breaking its own rules for the sake of monetary gain. The church had come to develop laws much more restrictive than we see in Scripture 
pertaining to marriages between cousins or between people with certain community or ecclesiastical relationships. In his 1522 treatise on marriage, which was titled The Estate of Marriage, Luther wrote concerning the Roman church laws on marriage where there was already an affinity or relationship through marriage. And he said, here too, they have set up four degrees so that after my wife's death, I may not marry into her blood relationship where my marriage extends up to the third and fourth degrees unless money comes to the rescue. But God has forbidden only these persons, namely my father's brother's wife, my son's wife, my brother's wife, my stepdaughter, the child of my stepson or stepdaughter, my wife's sister, while my wife is yet alive, setting from Leviticus chapter 18. And he says, I may not marry any of these persons, but I may marry any others. And without putting up any money for the privilege, so the Roman Catholic Church was demanding money for the privilege of certain marriages. And Luther says, for example, I may marry the sister of my deceased wife or fiancé, the daughter of my brother's wife, the daughter of my wife's cousin, and any of my wife's nieces, aunts, or cousins. This is after his wife had, had died. He's giving illustrations here, right? In the Old Testament, if a brother died without leaving an heir, his widow was required to marry his closest relative in order to provide her deceased husband with an heir. This is no longer commanded, says Luther, but neither is it forbidden. Then, writing in the same regard, but speaking of people with community or ecclesiastical relationships, which Luther calls spiritual relationships. He says, if I sponsor a girl at baptism or confirmation, then neither I nor my son may marry her or her mother or her sister unless an appropriate and substantial sum of money is forthcoming. In other words, the Roman Catholic Church was making up all these rules prohibiting who you can marry and allowing you to marry those people if you paid enough money to marry those people. And Luther says, this is nothing but pure farce and foolishness concocted for the sake of money and to befuddle consciences. Just tell me this, isn't it a greater thing for me to be baptized myself than merely to act as a sponsor to another? that I must be forbidden to marry any Christian woman, since all baptized women are spiritual sisters of all baptized men by virtue of their common baptism, sacrament, faith, spirit, Lord God, and eternal heritage. And he quotes from, he, he cites Ephesians chapter 4 in reference to that statement. So Luther railed against the Roman Catholic Church for setting up these draconian, marriage laws by which it could profit. Of course, he had many other issues with the Roman church concerning marriage, and especially the prohibition of marriage for priests. But Luther's remedy was to 
put the governance of marriage into the hands of the state, at least in Germany. With this, Luther also encouraged that the civil authority oversee divorce cases, at least on certain grounds. All of that certainly helped to pave the way for where we are today, where once the state has come to control marriage, the state has also come to define what marriage is. And for that, we suffer all sorts of gross perversions. Of course, Luther himself could never have foreseen this. And we hope to discuss more on Luther's role in the modern perception of marriage in the future. But what was most striking when we touched on this topic in our recent presentations was Luther's insistence in the estate of marriage that people should be permitted to marry outside of their faith. For this, he abused the text of Paul of Tarsus in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Luther wrote, I may not marry a Turk, meaning under current Catholic law. I may not marry a Turk, a Jew, or a heretic. I marvel that the blasphemous tyrants are not in their hearts ashamed to place themselves in such direct contradiction to the clear text of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he says, if a heathen wife or husband consents to live with a spouse, the Christian should not get a divorce, heathen in that context simply being an unbeliever. And St. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, says that Christian wives should behave so well that they thereby convert their non-Christian husbands, as did Monica, the mother of St. Augustine. Now, he refers to the woman known as St. Monica, if you're a Catholic idolater, or Monica of Hippo, if you're an objective historian. Monica of Hippo was born around 322 AD. And while it is said that her parents were Christians, we would contest the certainty of that, since she was married to a pagan Roman who was also a government official. But what is more important is that Paul's words were written to Christians who had recently converted to Christ, as he himself had established the Christian assembly in Corinth. And those new Christians were already married before coming to Christ. There is no evidence in Scripture that Paul would have advised those who were already Christians to marry pagans or Jews. In fact, Paul told those same Corinthians in that same epistle that if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, they were to be considered anathema, which means accursed. Why would Paul tell you to marry someone who was accursed? There is no doubt that Luther had taken Paul's words out of context. There is also no doubt that in Luther's Germany, the only beneficiaries of this position were the Jews in Germany. There weren't a lot of niggers and Turks and pagans and Hindus walking around Germany in the 16th century. 
Luther went on to say that, know therefore that marriage is an outward bodily thing, like any other worldly undertaking, just as I may eat, drink, sleep, walk, ride with, buy from, speak to, and deal with a heathen Jew, Turk, or heretic, so I may also marry and continue in wedlock with him. Luther uses the pronoun of women, of course. He's not advocating sodomite marriage. Pay no attention to the precepts of those fools who forbid it. You will find plenty of Christians, and indeed the greater part of them, who are worse in their secret unbelief than any Jew, heathen, Turk, or heretic. A heathen is just as much a man or a woman, God's good creation, as St. Peter, St. Paul, and St. Lucy, not to speak of a slack and spurious Christian. And here we have serious disagreement with Luther, especially where he is ignorant of the issue of race with regards to marriage. First, we assert that he did not understand the biblical grounds for legitimate marriage, which is racial homogeneity. Eve was flesh of Adam's flesh and bone of his bone, and therefore, on account of that, she was able to be his wife. Secondly, since Paul said that Christians must flee fornication, every sin that a man does is without the body, but he that commits fornication sins against his own body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, with that, it is evident that marriage being opposed, being the antonym or the opposite of fornication, that marriage transcends other worldly activities just as much as fornication transcends other worldly sins. In fact, earlier in the same treatise, Luther exhibited the understanding that the actual act of sexual intercourse was indeed marriage in the eyes of God. When that sec sexual intercourse is not illicit, when it would be considered fornication. The second subject of Luther's understanding, which we believe merits further discussion, is his contention against international trade. Luther knew that international trade was draining the German people and that it was destructive to the nation. From our modern perspective and understanding, while Luther's position on marriage certainly benefited the Jews, Luther's position on trade would be contrary to our general perception of the traditional role of Jews in Germany. So while on this issue, Luther's position would not be found compatible with the commonly perceived stereotype, that does not mean that Luther was not very much influenced by the Jews of his time. Luther's position on trade was one which favored German national interests, apart from his other positions, which also frequently favored Jewish interests. From this time that we currently discuss, it would still be 20 years before Luther felt betrayed and turned on the Jews. Further this evening, this issue of trade is soon raised again, 
by the letters of Ulrich von Hutten. Hopefully in a forthcoming episode of the series, we shall discuss it at greater length. We left our source, The History of the German People at the Close of the Middle Ages by Johann Janssen, Volume 3, Book 5, published in English in London in 1900 in a translation by A.M. Christie, where the humanist writer Ulrich von Hutten is publishing books and poetry against the Roman Catholic Church, in which he also rather frequently sings the praises of the emperor, Charles V, in hopes of winning him over to the cause of the reformers. The year is 1520. It is December of 1520 was the last date that I believe we were able to note. We read that Hutton, in his writings, gave the impression that he was confident that the emperor would place himself at the head of the contemplated bloody revolution against the Roman church. Here, as we return to page 142 of our source volume, we will find that privately, Hutton was not so optimistic. In his private correspondence, on the other hand, aside from his public writings, where he beckons Charles V and is confident that Charles V will join the cause of the reformers, in his private correspondence, on the other hand, it transpires that, after his visit to the court of the emperor's brother, Ferdinand, had proved fruitless, he had little hope left that Charles would assume the leadership of the revolutionary forces. I place but little hope on the emperor, he wrote, for he is surrounded by crowds of priests, some of whom especially have won his entire confidence. And in a letter to Erasmus on November 13, 1520, he expresses the same hopelessness with regard to the emperor. But at the same time, his intention of proceeding to revolutionary measures without his help. He exhorted Erasmus most urgently to be careful of his personal safety in the coming struggle and to take refuge at Basel, Switzerland. The conflict would already have begun if Sickingen, Franz von Sickingen, had not advised delay on account of the emperor. If you too, he writes to Luther, do not approve of my strong measures, Hutton wanted war with the church and he wanted it now. You cannot, at any rate, blame my intention of setting Germany free and gaining new glory for learning. Should the undertaking not succeed, still no skill or artifice of the popish court will be able to extinguish the fire that we shall have kindled for its destruction. That fire will burn on, even though we ourselves should be consumed in it. And from our ashes there will arise yet stronger and more valiant defenders of liberty. It is just because I am persuaded of this that I mean to attempt all 
and not to let myself be deterred by any threats. Even if an imperial edict goes out against us, every place of refuge will not be closed to us or all means of help taken from us. The Romish tyranny was beyond all measure terrible and could no longer, as Erasmus had thought, be stayed, be stayed by gentle means. There was nothing for it but to resort to arms and to cast away, to burn, to destroy the putrid corpse. He did not stand alone in the fight, he said in a song for the people. And I'm going to read a little of Hutton's poetry here, and we're going to read a little poetry later tonight, a few verses anyway, from one of Luther's adversaries, and we will give sufficient background on them. It seems that at this time, and we see the same thing today, where the masses are easily swayed by pop music, by songs, by simple messages which rhymed and, and made patterns that people like to repeat over and over. How often do you hear a pop song going through your head and you have to think about it for a minute to erase it, to stop hearing it? long after it's played on a radio. It's the same thing that we have today that it looks like we had in the 16th century, and even back all the way to ancient Greece and Rome, that messages through poetry hung with the people a lot longer than messages through long and stale and erudite essays and lectures. It's so much easier to write a stupid ditty to get a message out than it is to write a 10-page essay. And it's so much more effective. And we probably need some ourselves. Hutton said in this song for the people, there's many a one who will join the fun. Though death should prove his master, brave troopers arise, Lonsnecks likewise, save Hutton from disaster. The burden of another popular song is the glory he will earn as the champion of the gospel. Ah, noble Hut, a reference to himself, Hutton. Ah, noble Hut, Franconian, go forward undismayed. Anon thou shalt sing praises to God who gave thee aid. For justice well to fight, thou shalt uphold the right. With peasant and with knight, with pious warriors good, defend Christ's holy blood. I'm sure it rhymed better in German. So we see that Hutton, in his own poetry, has portrayed himself as a champion of the gospel. However, through his entire adult life, up to this point, he has been a pagan humanist. He's walking around with syphilis in these last years of his life. He was a profligate young man. He has been a pagan humanist and has traditionally despised the monks and others who were legitimately engaged in the study of scriptures. He was also a hedonist and a promoter of pagan immorality, 
when Hutton was supporting Reuschland and the cause for the preservation of the literature of the Jews, he encouraged the infiltration of the courts, of the bishops, by his fellow humanists as a means of perversion. He himself became employed in that same purpose at the court of Albert of Mainz. We cannot lose sight of the fact that Hutton was not merely a sworn enemy of the church, but that he was also, he had been also an enemy of Christian morality and true Christian learning. He transformed himself into an angel of light for the purpose of overthrowing the tyranny of Rome. But he is no true friend of Christianity. Politicians do the same thing today over and over again. All these people think Donald Trump is some sort of savior. I hope he gets elected so that they could see the disappointment on their own faces when things just get worse. As we have also previously discussed, Erasmus was a humanist who espoused many anti-Christian ideas and who fostered many younger humanists within the Roman Church organization itself. Continuing with our source from page 144, at the beginning of the year 1521, Hutton brought out a further collection of dialogues. In the first of these, the bull slayer, he repeats the call to arms. This is a matter which concerns us all. We are carrying on business for the profit of all. Come all, ye who wish to be free. Here is something of great value for sale. Here tyrants are expelled. Here bondage is broken. Here are lovers of freedom who cannot. All have disappeared from the land. I'm sorry, where are the lovers of freedom who cannot all have disappeared from the land? Where are the wise and the enlightened, those men of illustrious names? Where are ye, ye leaders of nations? Why come ye not to the muster to join with me in riddling our common in ridding, I'm sorry, our common father land of this past? Is there none who cannot endure to be a bondsman? Is there none who is ashamed of oppression and can wait no longer to become free. In one word, are there none left who have any manly courage and spirit? Where are all those who but lately were ready to march against the Turks? As if wild raging bulls were not far worse enemies for Germany. You have heard me. I see a hundred thousand armed men, and at their head my brave friend Sickingen. The gods be thanked. Germany has come to its senses and means to be free. And of course, Hutton may pretend to be a defender of the gospel, but cannot conceal his pagan intellectual background. Our source continues. In the dialogue of the robbers, he depicts four classes of thieves. The most harmless and inoffensive are the so-called street robbers, a far worse kind are the merchants who, by the introduction of foreign wares, 
outrageously rob the German people every year and who ought to be driven out of the country. So medieval Germany had its many Walmarts as well. Worse still are the lawyers who defeat all justice and who should be completely extirpated. But the very worst class of all are the robber bands of profligate priests. If Germany is not freed from this last class, so Hutton makes Sickingen say in a dialogue, there is no hope for the land. He will never cease to urge on the emperor that he must relieve the priests of their burden of riches for the increase of their piety and that he ought to have all the gold and the silver in the churches melted down and all the jewels sold and raise armies with the money thereby realized. Earlier in these presentations, we had seen that Martin Luther, in his 1520 address to the Christian nobility of the German nation, had scorned international trade as a drain on the German people. There, our author had informed us that the subject had frequently been raised by the theological political economists of the 15th century, and we see Hutton has also adopted it, demonstrating the understanding that the international merchants were indeed robbing the people. It's amazing that this was a... Um, well-understood concept in the Protestant Reformation, but most people don't understand it at all today. That's amazing. That's the power of Jewish media and propaganda for you. Interestingly, when Charles Martel raised armies to defend France from the marauding Muslims, he was also compelled to loot the churches in order to pay for his armies. Martel was later despised by the French Catholic priests, who seemed to have preferred the opportunity to keep their riches and turn to Islam rather than to remain as Christians and be impoverished wherever they are established in white European nations. The Roman Catholic churches have historically been very wealthy, just as the ancient pagan temples were centers for wealth. But contrary to the gospel of Christ, which would exhort them to use that wealth for the benefit of the community. So on the other hand, the humanists insist on the Reformation. They insist on the tearing down of these Catholic churches, the displacement of the priesthood so that they could loot and pillage the priests, possibly as Robin Hoods, but just as likely for their own gain. Perhaps here I should discuss my own childhood impressions at St. Aidan's Church in Jersey City. I had one opportunity when I was sent on an errand to go to the rectory at St. Aidan's Church. I must have been in third grade. That's my guess. I must have been about eight years old. And it was the first time I ever saw inside the rectory. St. Aidan's Church, if you look it up on Google, is an absolutely beautiful brick church. 
when I was in this in this rectory in the entry hall, because that's as far as I ever got into it, and I remember speaking to an old woman who was a housekeeper of some sort. I never saw anything like it in my life. I could see the dining room and I could see a sitting room on the other side of the entry hall. And the wooden walls, the varnished wooden walls, all the walls were wood paneling and and the plush carpets and the wooden furniture and a lavishly set dining table of shiny silver and gold and chalices and crystal. Crystal was everywhere. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I never saw anything like it at eight years old, and I've probably never seen anything like it since. It it was absolutely amazing to me at that young age how rich that Catholic rectory was. And, And I could imagine that in medieval Germany, there was probably much the same scene in most Catholic churches. So there's no doubt these um, Catholic priests are adept at piling up riches for themselves and neglecting the communities. And, And I saw that all through my childhood. What when the Catholic priests all had Cadillacs and, and most of the people in the working class community I grew up in were, were driving around in beat up 10 and 15 year old vehicles. But that's enough of that. I, I can understand how Ulrich von Hutton expressed the words that he did in relation to the riches of the Catholic priests. To return to our source, it was not by Rome only that the German people were plundered without measure and without end. The emperor's own German prelates were just as bad, and so mighty they had, had they grown through fraud and robbery that they had gained possession of all the fairest regions and most fruitful plains of Germany. The ill-fated tribe of the Franconians was especially in subjection to the godless rule of the priests and had forfeited the glorious name of free Franconians by accepting the yoke more servilely than any other tribe. But the day of delivery from these most pestilential robbers was at hand. Now, Franconia is that part of southern central Germany which lies east of Frankfurt and west of the Czech border in the northern parts of modern Bavaria. The prelates were the bishops and the other senior ecclesiastical dignitaries. We have already portrayed at length the luxury in which Albrecht, the bishop of Mayence, had lived and the licentiousness of his court. Ironically, Hutton was a beneficiary of that wealth. And without it, he could not have waged his war against the church. Continuing with our source from page 145. Thus we see that in these projects of emancipation, it was not merely the diminution of the wealth of the church and the plunder of the churches that was planned, but also the transformation of ecclesiastical principalities into secular ones. 
such as Sickingen, for instance, later on tried to effect in the case of the archbishopric of Trier, Trier, the German city on the Moselle River near modern Luxembourg. As soon as the monument, mo, I'm sorry, as soon as the moment of deliverance had come, said Hutton, the knights of the realm must try and persuade all the most honorable townships of Germany to put aside all old quarrels and differences and to unite in common action. For I see them aspiring after freedom and protesting against this scandalous bondage as no other class does. They have strength, moreover, and money in abundance, so that if it comes to fighting, and in my opinion it must, they will be able to supply the necessary sinews of war. All this, says a merchant whom Hutton brings into the dialogue, this is Hutton's fictitious work, all this seems to point to a war against the priests, which may Christ the Savior hasten. For according to my holding, there has never been a more just or more urgent cause for war. Whereupon Hutton answers, It is, as you say, if it has always been held necessary to fight against every kind of tyranny, what zeal must we now evince when we have to do with tyrants who not only lay hands on our property and rob us of our civil freedom, but who also undermine our faith, our religion, all we hold sacred, who suppress the truth and even endeavor to drive Christ himself from our thoughts. Another Hussite whirlwind was to be let loose on German soil. Accordingly, in another dialogue, the second admonisher, the title of the dialogue, Hutton introduces the Hussite leader Ziska. Of course, Ziska died a hundred years before this, perhaps. The Hussite leader Ziska, in the character of a deliverer, he makes Sickingen say, and in order that you may see that it is not always fared ill, with those who have been enemies of the priesthood, I will mention to you one man instead of many, the Bohemian, Ziska, the invincible leader in the fiercest and longest war ever waged against sacerdotalism, meaning against the Roman priesthood. In what respect does Ziska fall short of the most glorious renown of the greatest of generals? Has he not left behind him the fame of having freed his country from tyranny, of having rid all Bohemia of those good-for-nothing wretches, the lazy priests and lazier monks, of having distributed their goods among the different foundations and the community at large, of having closed the country against the attacks and robberies of the Pope, of having manfully avenged the martyrdom of the saintly John Huss, and with all of this having sought no reward, of having no in no wise enriched himself. When the admonitor objects that he has heard say that Ziska's deeds were full of atrocity and godlessness, Sickingen answers that it is no crime to punish the guilty and to deprive the haughty 
avaricious, luxurious, and idle men of that which they had taken possession unlawfully, and to drive them out of the fatherland, where their presence in such numbers causes famine and scarcity. Why, asks Sickingen, the Sickingen of Hutton's contrived dialogue, why, asks Sickingen, should I not follow such an example? Now, this Ziska was a true hero. John Ziska is worthy of further attention, which we cannot pay him here this evening. He was a Czech general and leader of the Hussite rebellion against Rome. He defeated the armies of the German Holy Roman Empire and the Teutonic Order and of the Hungarians, all of which Rome had brought against the Bohemians, and the Germans were more than willing to comply at that time. He was also the first general known to have used artillery in the field against cavalry, which turned out to be a very effective strategy. He consequently went undefeated in battle. And because of that, Bohemia remained free of Roman church tyranny until it fell to the political subjection of the Habsburgs, where in the early 17th century, Czech Protestants were either destroyed or expelled. And today, sadly, from what I have read in sources I don't always like, but I don't have much other, only about 10% of the people of the Czech Republic identify as Catholic, but 80% identify as having no religion whatsoever. So the heroes of the Bohemians, such as Hus and Ziska, are not as celebrated as they certainly should be. Continuing with page 147 of our source, Hutton desired to gain the emperor to his side, but he meant to go through with his plans even if Charles was not favorable, even if the emperor didn't want war, Hutton sure as hell did. For he said, there are cases in which not to obey is the truest obedience. The emperor lets himself be made use of by the worst men for things that are of no profit. If it is his destiny so promptly to follow bad counselors, I think that speedy downfall will also be his destiny. And of course, that didn't happen. Charles V was actually on. Um, on the throne a long time. And after a long time, I don't remember the exact year, but it was over 30, 40 years. After a long time, 30-something years, he voluntarily abdicated to his own brother, Maximilian, and retired. Sounded, surrounded as he was by a host of honorable men, the emperor ought to deprive the bishops of their inordinate power, abolish superstition, bring in the true religion, 
and the light of the faith and restore the freedom of Germany. It was not the opinions of single individuals, but the will of God that should be considered. Truth and religion were at stake. If the emperor, however, will not take up his cause, this cause, and no hope any longer remains that he will interest himself in the welfare of the fatherland, I, meaning Hutton, have resolved to make a venture at my own risk, be the result what it may. Even if he were not elected emperor, Charles V was still the hereditary king of Germany, Italy, and Spain. He was the Archduke of Austria, he was the Duke of Burgundy, and he was the Lord of the Netherlands. But he was also a Habsburg by birth, and therefore he was considered a German. And of course, as we've seen, as we've just seen, the Habsburgs were not very friendly to the Czech reformers, running them out of Bohemia. About a hundred years after this, continuing from page 148, the Politico-Ecclesiastical Revolutionary Party was, in great measure, responsible for the state of things in Germany, which is deplored by the Franciscan monk Thomas Murner in his lament on the downfall of the Christian faith. In this poem, he says that no right-minded person can defend the existing evils and abuses of the church and that the church people themselves are partly to blame for the revolutionary movement that has broken out. Now, of course, when Thomas Murner talks about the revolutionary movement that has broken out, he's talking about Martin Luther and Ulrich von Hutten and all of their humanist compatriots. Here we have an interesting conflict. The Hebraist, meaning that he was well-studied in the Hebrew language, and he apparently was, the Hebraist and Kabbalist, he was also well-studied in the Kabbalah, the Hebraist and Kabbalist theologian, Johann Reuslin, was Ulrich von Hutton's mentor, although Hutton was actually a pagan humanist. In 1517, Hutton was honored as poet laureate and with knighthood by the Emperor Maximilian. So he already knew Maximilian when he went to curry his favor towards the Reformation in 1519, early 1520. But Thomas Murner, this man here who is condemning the Luther Reformation, Thomas Murner was a more traditional theologian. He was a priest who held a doctoral degree in theology, and he was the custodian of the Franciscan monastery at Strasbourg. But he too was a poet, and in 1505, 12 years before Hutton, he had an appointment as poet laureate by the same emperor, Maximilian. And I'm sorry, I'm confusing Maximilian Hutton, new Maximilian, but he didn't go to Maximilian at the um, court in Brussels. Maximilian was already passed. I'm confused. 
Ulrich von Hutten was appointed poet laureate and with knighthood by Maximilian in 1517. Thomas Murner, a theologian, a real theologian, unlike Hutton, was also a poet laureate by the same Emperor Maximilian in 1505. On a separate note, Murner had also met and had the favor of Henry VIII. Henry VIII had actually invited Murner to England, and Murner accompanied, well, well he went to England and, and spent time in the company of Henry VIII and certain other English nobles. Henry VIII supposedly supported Murner at Strasbourg later on because he appreciated his being an orthodox theologian as opposed to theologians such as Luther and the other reformers. So at that time, Henry VIII was still supporting the orthodoxy. We will read this um, poem which Myrna wrote, or at least parts of it, offered by our author, because it reflects the effect which Hutton and Luther were having on Germany, that it was very real. These aren't just letters going back and forth, that these poems that Hutton's writing, these books and pamphlets reading, being written by these humanists who are in the party of Martin Luther, are actually getting into the hands of the people and having an effect on the people of Germany. This Reformation it is real. It, it's the word is being spread, and that's putting these Catholic priests, these German Catholics, in fear. So we'll read this poetry because... It shows those effects which Luther and Hutton were having on Germany, as well as the way in which Lutheran theology, the way in which Lutheran theology was being interpreted by traditional churchmen of the time. Whether or not that's what we read in Luther's theology, we could see that they thought it was extremely extreme. the beginning of the quotes from Myrner's poetry, the evils they deplore, meaning Luther and Hutton, no man of honor louds, meaning that these priests don't agree with everything that the Roman Catholic Church has been doing. And we will see um, Myrner denounce the indulgences here. The evils they deplore, no man of honor Louds. God will endure no more, methinks, these Romish frauds. Yet herein do I grieve, and all my heart is rent. On faith they will upheave. This is my sore lament. I must in truth say this we are to blame indeed. To sell indulgences may many a man mislead. Who Thus forgiveness buys, and thinks all's even now, that man will lightly prize all sacraments I trow. The word trow is an archaic word which means to believe or to think. 
These verses reveal that, like Luther, Thomas Murner also believed that the practices of the Roman Church were fraudulent and needed to be reformed. However, we will see that he believed that the party of the Lutherans would destroy the faith in Europe rather than repair it. The author says in response to these verses, the ruling powers, he goes on to say, meaning murder, were sunk in indolence, discord and envy reigned among the clergy. But these evils could not be cured by a revolutionary upheaval and by the complete shattering of all existing institutions, which is what Hutton wanted, and, and Luther too, to a great extent, which was what the new religious movement must lead to. The whole fabric of church organization would be destroyed by the new doctrines that were being preached. And he goes on to quote more of Murner's poetry, and we will read it, even though my reading is probably probably has many shortcomings. The shepherd is struck down and scattered are the sheep. The popes expelled. His crown no longer can he keep. And scarcely now is named the name of Christ the Lord. Lies everywhere proclaimed and venom rank outpoured. The patriarchs, meaning lies, falsehoods, everywhere proclaimed. The patriarchs and all, the cardinals, are gone. No bishops in his stall, the parsons left alone. The people now decree, in ignorance most dense, who shall their shepherd be? Ah, woe, the shame immense. The holy mass is nil. In life or yet in death, the sacraments they will revile with every breath. Five of them they benulled and left us two alone, speaking of Luther's theology. But so to pieces pulled, they'll also soon be gone. Of Luther's doctrine of universal priesthood, which is absolutely scriptural, Murner says, We are priests now, every one, and women, all women and all men, though orders we have none, nor have anointed them. The stool stands on the table, the couch before the steed, the faith is quite unstable, and soon will fall indeed. He's scorning the Christian idea that every man be a priest. In some half-dozen more verses, he describes the misery and discord caused throughout the empire by the new doctrines. So Luther's theological doctrines are indeed being spread throughout Europe. He laments that the gospel, which once filled men's hearts with joy and gladness, is now only the cause of tumult and bloodshed. The apple is thrown down, and discord is everywhere. In village and in town, no one will give a hair. No, not a single mite. The magistrates are spurned by cunning and by spite. Our hearts to gall are turned. The gospel was of old, a message of glad mirth, which heaven did unfold 
to fill with peace the earth. But now they've poisoned it with wrath and bitterness. The sacred holy writ brings only wretchedness. I guess this particular priest didn't read the part about bringing not peace but a sword, but that's okay. Of God's most holy word, complaints I dare not make, but these men do pervert the truth for slaughter's sake. The word of endless life, which Christ brought from above, they've used war and strife instead of peace and love. Had Turkish armies won each Alemannic town, Alemanni or Alemanian, German, from rising of the sun to where it goeth down, they could not have destroyed our holiness as much as we have been annoyed by Christians, yelloped such, and that precise meaning of that word yelloped is thus far quite elusive. Since Christ, his time indeed, upon my oath I say, there never was such sore need among Christians as today. The beauty of our trust has fallen with great might. Our crown lies in the dust and is being mocked outright. Agitators who entrampled the people and inculcated contempt for all authority would bring about the complete ruin of the faith, as Munzer expresses in the last verses of his poetry, which we will cite tonight who now can best be fooled with lying words and teach contempt for law and rule and insurrection preach. Him flock the masses round to hear him shout and smash our faith till on the ground it crumbles into ash. So Thomas Murner saw the end of Christianity in Europe with Luther's Reformation. Through the responses in the writings of Thomas Murner, we see that everything which we have read from Luther and Hutton in all of their writings offered here, described here, has indeed had a notable impact on the people of Germany, and that traditional German churchmen feared the ultimate results of that impact. What also must be noted, however, is that while Luther ventured for reform in the indulgences dispute, he does not seem to have had a lot of popular support, which may have been for lack of bravery in the part of these same churchmen who now, as Thomas Murner writes this in perhaps in early 1521, who now admit that the indulgences are evil. Luther did not want to break from the Roman church and hardly imagined that such a thing would be necessary until after 1519. So Thomas Murder seems kind of late to this game. Our author continues to address the writings of Murner. In an exhaustive reply to Luther's address to the German nobility, Murner speaks out frankly concerning the abuses of the church, annates, pallium money, commendums, reservations, and others, over and above the indulgences, right? And will excuse no one for their abuses, 
As for the contempt into which the church penalty of the ban has fallen, he says, nobody is to blame for it but the priests and bishops who have used or rather abused it so lightly, often inflicting it for a mere theft of two or three hazelnuts or some such paltry manner. These abuses should be put down in a constitutional manner by the ecclesiastical courts, the emperors, and the estates, but they should not be used, as Luther is using them, to injure our faith. Luther, he said, as nobody could doubt, was only taking up the grievances of the German nation against the court of Rome as a lever and a plausible pretext for upsetting the Christian faith, for spreading his poison over the land and proclaiming Hussite and Lollard doctrines, Lollards being the people of England who followed Wycliffe the first man to translate a Bible into the English language in modern times. Whilst endeavoring to unite Germany with the Bohemians and the Muscovites, and there evidently he's referring to the Eastern Orthodox Church, he would separate the country as regards its creed from all other Christian fellowships. I hope to God that we Germans will in time have got rid of all our grievances and will afterwards remain pious Christians and submissive to the laws of our fatherland. Whether for the removal of these grievances a council would be necessary, he left to the emperor and the estates to decide. Luther, he said, had talked of appealing to a council, but I should have thought, he continues, addressing himself to Luther, that since you long so much for a council, you would have trusted to that same council, inspired by the Holy Ghost, to make all necessary reforms and to redress all grievances. You are disregarding this right and proper course and embarking on a fatal line of action. Everywhere, he complains, Luther is counseling arbitrary measures. His language to the Pope is outrageous. I will say in truth that the meanest scullion has never been more shamefully scolded and abused than the Pope. And even if he were a murderer and the greatest villain on the earth, he ought not to be treated so scandalously. No improvement in the condition of the church would ever be effected by such calumnious writings as Luther's. And I have to say that I perceive another dynamic here that perhaps won't be explained by our author, even though he did explain the facts. And that is that after Martin Luther had failed in the attempt to reform the church in the indulgences dispute, it seems that none of these German priests were rallying to his side to institute councils and to choose or plan a course of action at that time. But perhaps there wasn't much time allowed for that because the humanists had rallied to Martin Luther's side very, very quickly and had influenced Luther to be much more radical 
than he otherwise might have been. That's my opinion. I can't probably ever prove it, but that seems to be what's happened, that these humanists who had failed to overthrow the power of these Franciscan monks and these prelates and clerics in Germany with the Reuschling controversy had very quickly signed up to the cause of Luther after the indulgences dispute and also urged Luther on to force this reformation. That's my opinion. To return to our author and Murner's comments on Luther, whilst refuting Luther's dogmatic and doctrinal assertions, Murner becomes particularly fierce in the passage where he treats of the Holy Mass to Luther's assertion that the establishment of the Masses is not only of little use, but also provokes God's anger against us. He answers, I must tear open my heart here in great bitterness and speak with you briefly, but in plain German. And I will set aside all priestcraft, doctor's degrees, monkhood, monasticism, vows, oaths, promises, and what not, by which I might seem laid under obligation, and will be simply a pious Christian. Well then, my father taught me from my youth up to show reverence to the Mass as to a memorial of the sufferings of Christ, our Lord, and thus all are taught who learn the Holy Scriptures about our common Savior, Christ, that the Mass is a sacrifice profitable for the living and for the dead. All sacred teachers are of this opinion. It is our holy usage that has grown up with us since the time of the Twelve Apostles. See to it now and remember, you high priests of the faith, that you teach us the truth in this manner of the Mass. For it lies at the heart's core of every Christian man. For if this should not be, and any error were found here, it may well be conjectured what might happen in other cases. See to it, and remember that here, in this matter of the Mass, you do not delay or spare. For you see that they do not delay or spare who are combating our reverence for the Holy Mass. But if you delay, you will rue the evil. Of course, we would also contest the legitimacy of the ritual mass because the scriptures truly teach that we are to honor the memory of Christ with every meal and not just in a temple one morning each week. To say that the mass is a sacrifice to us would be blasphemy because no sacrifice offered by men could improve on the ultimate sacrifice offered by God himself. But the Lutheran Church I'm sorry. I pulled my plug. But the Lutheran Church 
ultimately retained the ritual of the Mass. I don't know what happened exactly that caused that. The Lutheran Church retained a lot of things that Martin Luther actually campaigned against early on. But it retained the ritual of the Mass, as well as many other Roman Catholic rituals. Continuing with our author's reproduction of Murner's Essay Against Luther on page 153 of our source. This I say from my Christian heart and my father's teaching. If all the bishops were silent as death, so that the worship of the Holy Mass became extinct, still I would testify with this my handwriting, that I will die out of this world in the paternal doctrine of the worship of the Mass, and will trust for salvation through the contemplation of the cross of Christ. And of course, that last part is correct. Referring to Luther's proposal that the ancient abbeys should be reserved for the younger sons of the nobility, he says, in this, the Holy Ghost does not speak through you, Luther, but you are holding out a bait to the nobility. And he certainly was. For you say, we are all of the priestly order. If then we are all of the same order, why do you give privileges to the children of the nobles before all others? Do you mean to say that Christ admitted only nobles to the high dignity of the twelve apostles? As you pride yourself on being a truth-speaking man, this flattery does not become you. But if you cannot prove this from holy writ, I let it stand for human speech. And of course, Murner would be correct in this criticism. Luther was indeed coddling the nobles, as well as the emperor and the archbishop of Maine hoping to gain their approval and support for his reformation. That doesn't make it right. That was his motivation. Luther's goal is to overthrow the supremacy of the Pope. Everything else is merely a tool in that endeavor. Our author continues to describe Werner's defense of traditional Roman Catholicism. Again and again, he begs and conjures the nobles to fight for and protect the ancient Christian faith. Murner confused Roman Catholicism for the ancient Christian faith, and we should not share that confusion. I will not have it denied that Dr. Luther is in the wrong and has spoken untruth in everything, but in many things... He has been found not unskillful. And of course, Luther spoke a lot of truths and also had a lot of misconceptions. In this, he blames him, however. Most of all, for that, he has so mixed up truth with falsehood that the one cannot be separated from the other or understood by simple-minded Christians. Also, because by means of you, the chief and the most prominent people he has abused his noble profession and his reason for seditious, separatist, and unchristian ends to lead Christ's poor lambs into unbelief. Luther's turbulent proceedings must inevitably lead to a bunchu, which is a rising 
of the peasants, and to frantic and senseless agitation. And here our translator has a footnote concerning the word bunshu, so-called from the device a bunshu, or a rough kind of peasant shoe, which was stuck on a pole as a banner at the first peasant's rising in 1431. And indeed, there is such a peasant's rising in the works. This is the beginning of 1521. There is a peasant's rising which occurred in 1524 and 1525, mainly in western and southern Germany. However, Luther himself condemned that war, and his condemnation seems to have greatly attributed to its defeat. The lives of perhaps a 100,000 peasants were lost, but that war was chiefly economic and not really religious, and the peasants were demanding agrarian rights and freedom from the nobles, things that hearken to the later French Revolution. Continuing with our source on page 154, Merner, too, addressed himself, as Luther and Hutton had done, to the newly elected Emperor Charles. He begged and implored him to stand up for the old faith. Never since its foundation, he said at the beginning of his address to Charles, had the empire been more dangerously attacked than it was now by Luther and his party. This so-called reformer, like a second Catiline, was fomenting civil war, as if such insurrection, innovation, and forcible revolution were in accordance with the Christian faith, and as if God's command could in such wise be obeyed and no sin committed. Church and state are tottering to their foundations, wrote the prebendary Charles von Bodmin, shortly before King Charles came over from Spain. Evidently, this is after he was seated as emperor, in 1520, and the eyes of the world are turned to the young emperor who is assuming the reins of government under more difficult and distressing circumstances than any of his predecessors on the throne. How will he be able to avert the imminent danger of intestine war? What remedies will he discover for the daily and rapid spread of heresy? The nation looks to him as to its savior in its extremest need. So we see that Martin Luther was indeed a cause of dread among the traditional theologians of Germany. Here we have two witnesses to that. And his threat to the old order and his threats of war and Hutton's threats of war were being taken very seriously. These theologians, these priests, even recognizing that war was inevitable. This ends book five of our source volume. And when we commence this series, we shall proceed with book six. And the account of Martin Luther at the Deed of Worms. Worms, I believe that's pronounced. 
and the sentence passed on his new gospel. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night. Thank you.